Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf, excuse me, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead, shall lead them. The cow and bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In Luke 1, uh, 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is, he, is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and returned to her home. At this time, uh, we'd like to welcome Matt Kopp uh, from Faith Bible Church, Orange County, up uh, to minister uh, to us from the Lord's Word. has faced, uh, is facing, and will be facing difficulties at some time in our lives. And those difficulties, those trials take on a whole myriad of different shapes and forms. Sometimes it's trials that are related to physical pain or to sickness. Sometimes it's trials that are in the form of relational strife and difficulties we are having with other people. We know that we live on a sinful planet full of sinful people where literally our entire creation is groaning in agony as we suffer. And we see this as we've already been mentioned this morning as we look at something like what happened in Connecticut and seeing just the, the ravages that sin has brought upon our planet. And so none of us are immune to that and are immune to those sufferings. 
As Christians, though, I think that some of these trials and these difficulties can be even heightened to those, from those around us. Sometimes it is that there is that acute awareness of the spiritual realities that may be uh, accompanying someone else's pain or someone else's struggle. Maybe it is that when we're watching a loved one die and we know that that in and of itself is, is terribly difficult. But if you know that they don't know Jesus Christ and that they are not only facing their physical death, but they are facing a Christless eternity, that causes our hearts to break all the more. That heightens that suffering. Sometimes suffering is heightened as a result of our faith. That maybe it is that our suffering is a direct result of our love for Jesus Maybe it's a relationship that is strained because we are convinced that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation and so people in our lives don't like that. Maybe that suffering comes because God, or that trial comes because God is calling you to suffer. Maybe it is something like safe families or another mercy ministry that the Lord is calling you in to be a part of. And he says, I want you to give up some of your comfort I want your home to not always be your castle and your safe hideaway, but instead I want it to be a refuge for somebody who's hurting. And guess what? That's going to bring pain. That's going to bring some sorrow and some suffering into your life. Maybe it is persecution that you are at work or with your friends or with your family uh, being turned upon by them and suffering, being persecuted because of your faith in Christ and your love for him. But as we live here on this planet, we know that difficulties are going to be the common experience of everyone. And as believers, we are going to suffer in a unique way. And yet, praise God, his word is not silent about this. He hasn't left us here and said, all right, you know, figure it out on your own and we'll talk about it when you get to heaven. No, instead, the scriptures frequently speak of trials and of difficulties uh, and how it is that we can face those and how the truths of the gospel minister to our hearts in times of trial. So whatever trial or struggle, whatever difficulty or discouragement you are facing and you are thinking about, whatever's weighing on your heart this morning, my prayer is that this passage from the book of Romans will speak to you where you're at that God's spirit will use that to encourage your heart, to help you understand his love for you. Trials can be difficult. As I mentioned before, there was a particular summer, uh, as it was in, in the life of my family, where God drove us to our knees into a place of dependence. And uh, really in the midst of what was just a storm for our souls, this passage in Romans 5 became an anchor. Something for us to hold on to as everything else uh, was, was turbulent and shifting. Uh, The year was 2005. I was heading into my final year of seminary. Uh, So for me, things were looking very positive. That was the hope of the end of a very long commute from South Orange County uh, up to the Master's Seminary. Uh, I was looking forward to the end of homework, uh, having figured that I would never go back to school once I finished my undergrad, and yet here I was uh, with another three years of study, looking forward to that. Uh, We were pregnant uh, with our first child and looking forward to uh, what would be our first little boy, and uh, things were going well. It was feeling like a fairly blessed time and uh, like there was a lot of hope on the horizon. But then uh, difficulty began to really set in and, and take shape in a number of ways. First, my wife's stepdad began watching his mother quickly die from a very aggressive case of liver cancer. Uh, Neither of them are believers. It was particularly heightened that he was uh, the only child from kind of a line of only children. Uh, He wasn't the only child. His sister died uh, when she was young. His dad was dead. He had basically no living relatives and no uh, hope in Christ. And um, all he had was his mom. And she was quickly fading. And by August of that year, she was gone. But before she died, in the midst of that, for us came one of the worst and uh, really most unexpected difficulties of our lives. Uh, In July, shortly before uh, my father-in-law's 40th birthday, he made the tragic decision to end his own life. Uh, He had uh, become one of my best friends during seminary. We spent a lot of time together. Um, He lived with us for a while when he had moved down to California to be close to uh, his daughter. And uh, one night, he didn't show up for a dinner that he and I had planned. And it was kind of out of the blue and unexpected. And so uh, I went to his house. And uh, that's when we found him and found the choice that he had made. And that was an extremely difficult day for me, for my wife, a difficult time for our family. 
And then uh, amidst that backdrop of the pain and the grief that we were going through, uh, then my pregnant wife began experiencing complications with the pregnancy. And uh, in the grand scheme of things, it turns out that they were, they were mild. It was something that uh, was able to be treated. But at the time, it seemed possible and certainly terrifying that these symptoms may have been a sign of something much worse uh, that was coming. And it sort of there was that feeling that things were already crashing down. And so it's just fear that there might be one more thing that God would put on us. So in the midst of those trials, our hearts were longing for something to grasp onto. There's things that we can't explain, right? We can't understand, much like you watch on the media and Facebook and Twitter, and people try to explain what happened in Connecticut, and how do you wrap your head and your heart around that? And for us, there was just that sense of, Lord, where do we turn? Where do we go? What's going to get us through that trial? And it was then that God directed us to Romans 5, and kind of said, you hold on to this. Here's deep theological truths for you to grasp onto, for you to understand about who I am, and this will take you through those trials. So maybe you have been there like us, or maybe you are there like we were right now, where you are struggling under the weight of trials. We are wrestling to comprehend the goodness of God, or to understand the sovereignty of God, whether it is from something just catastrophic and feeling like a life-changing type trial, Or maybe it is just something that comes from that constant drip, drip, drip of small trials that over time just feel like they're wearing on your heart. They're wearing you out. And much like a drip of water can eventually carve a channel through even the largest of rocks as it just drips over time. Sometimes little trials can do that to our own hearts. Sometimes even just the wrestling with our own sin. Never mind everybody else and our world around us and what's going on there, but just our struggles with our sin and our weakness can discourage us and begin to get us down. So listen as I read the words of Paul. My prayer is that the love of God would minister to our hearts. I'm going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. Let me pray and then let's talk about this text. Gracious Father, as we consider your word, we are thankful that you have inscripturated for us this truth that we can cling to and that we can see you revealed in your scriptures. Lord, at this time of year, we think about the coming of your son and the radical and overwhelming truth that you would send the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, to earth to take on flesh, to live among us, and to do all of that so that he might die as a sacrifice for sins. God, I pray that this morning you would open our eyes and open our hearts. God, I pray that your spirit would work. I pray that he would work in me, that he would direct me to say only that which he would have for me to say. And I pray, God, that he would work within the hearts of everyone in the body here, that you would illumine their minds and cause them to understand your scriptures in the way that only you can do. We trust, God, that you will do that so that you will be glorified. And so we pray with confidence in Christ's name. Amen. 
This morning, we're going to focus in on verses 6 through 11 of Romans chapter 5. And uh, we need to understand verse 5, though, because that's going to sort of set up where we're going. So what we're going to look at, just by way of overview, first is love as the foundation of hope in verse 5. Then we're going to look at the expression of God's love in verses 6 through 8. The extent of God's love in verses 9 and 10. And then the end result of God's love in verse 11. So let's start with, the founda- with love as the foundation of hope in verse 5. And we find it in Romans 5.1. Paul starts out there and says, Therefore, having been justified. And he goes on from there to give really a list of some of the, the results or some of the blessings that come to us in our justification. These are the effects of salvation. These are the realities of the saving work of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hearts of all those who have believed. The Bible teaches, of course, that we are justified by faith, uh, that when a person believes in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, when they trust in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that is the only way that sins can be forgiven uh, and that uh, new life can be granted, that when we believe those things, an amazing transaction happens. God takes away our sin. He forgives us because Christ has paid the penalty on the cross. He forgives every sin, past, present, and even future. It's wiped away completely. But then he doesn't leave us there, sort of at a fresh ground zero. Instead, he gives us the righteousness of Christ. He imputes the obedience, the perfect obedience of Christ to us. So that Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law becomes ours. His perfect obedience to the Father becomes ours. So our sin has been taken away. The righteousness of Christ has been given to us. And all as a work of God's grace. That is the beauty of justification. We are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that we boast in the glorious work of the triune God alone. And then with that justification comes a whole host of benefits. Verse 1 says that we are at peace in our relationship with God, that we are no longer enemies of God. We are no longer rebels. We are no longer against him, and he is not against us, but we are at peace with him. Verse two says that we have access into the grace of God continually. He calls it the grace in which we stand, the grace that we need every day. We have access, continual access to that in Christ. Verse two also says that we have joy or that we can rejoice in the hope that God gives, the confidence and the certainty of all that he has promised us and all that he will do for us. Then verses three and four, he says that we have joy in the midst of trials because of the work of God in us and for us. And then in verse five, Paul comes back to this idea of hope. He says that God gives hope uh, that does not disappoint Hope that does not disappoint. It's never going to let us down. It's never going to fail us. But how can Paul be so sure? How can he be so confident that for those who are justified, no matter what trial comes your way, no matter what struggle or difficulty, that we can have absolute assurance that God will never let us down, that he will never fail us? How can we have that kind of confidence? How can we know beyond a shadow of a doubt And how can you and I know? It's one thing for the Apostle Paul to know, right? This great theologian of the New Testament, uh, writing all these books like Romans. Okay, it's one thing for him to know. But how can we, as ordinary believers in Jesus Christ, know with confidence that when you look at that trial you're facing, whatever's on your heart right now, whatever you see coming down the pipeline, as you look at that, how can you have confidence that God will not fail you, that he will carry you through? Well, the answer that's given in this text is because the Holy Spirit of God is there dumping, just pouring and flooding the love of God into our hearts as believers. And when it says that there in verse five, that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given for us or given to us, excuse me, that's not talking about our love for God. That's talking about God's love for us. 
that the Holy Spirit is there. And it's as if he has this funnel that he's just dumping the love of God into our hearts, pouring it right there, right where we need it most so that we would continually understand it and continually live in the good of that. So how do we know that God will carry us through even the darkest of trials, even the most difficult of times? How can we be sure? Because his love is constantly there, ministered to us by the Holy Spirit, reminding us that he has given us hope, that he is faithful, and that he loves us. So we're going to look at this morning is that love to understand the breadth and the depth, just a little bit more of the love of God, because that's the foundation for hope. That's the hope that we have. That's where it's going to rest is because of the love of God for us. And so I want us to look at that with open minds to understand the text, with open hearts, just to be receiving the love of God this morning. So let's look in verses 6 through 8 at the expression of the love of God, the expression of God's love for his children. Uh, we're familiar with that expression, that idea of an expression of love, right? We've heard that. We've talked about that. If you're married or if you're dating someone, you've probably thought about how you express your love for them. <coughs> Excuse me. We know that, that love is more than just a feeling, right? It's not just an emotion. It's something that is expressed in our actions, expressed in relationships. When you think about uh, men and women, there's some differences in uh, expressions of love and how we like to receive that, right? Um, ladies, I tend to prefer men to express their love with things like words of affection, maybe some flowers, uh, chocolate is nice on occasion, uh, diamonds are nice, right, ladies? That's a very nice expression of love. If you've got a creative uh, husband, maybe some tender love poems that he would write that would express love that way. Guys, we're a little different, right? We like things like food. That's a great expression of love for men, right? Tickets to sporting events. Uh, power tools, right? Food, did I say that right? right? There's these different ways that we like to have love expressed to us that we understand that, right? And when we think about these expressions of love, there's a degree of sacrifice that really shows the depth of love for someone. Uh, for example, if you are leaving the grocery store or leaving your place of business and there's somebody there and they're asking you for 20 bucks, right? They're saying they're in a desperate situation, they need some help. And uh, so you reach into your wallet, you reach in your purse, you pull out $20, you hand that to them and you don't think about it again, right? That has no effect on your daily operating budget. That's not gonna be a crisis for your family because you have uh, generously shared that money. That's a good thing, right? That uh, is probably hopefully an expression of a God-honoring generous heart and we praise God for that. Uh, but it's not exactly marked by, by just a, a depth of sacrifice. But if someone comes to you and someone in your family maybe asks you to be a bone marrow donor, they ask that you would undergo that whole process, a painful process of donating live tissue for their benefit. So you say yes, but you end up giving up all of your vacation time in order to make that happen. And then you do it with great joy. There's an expression of love that's marked by sacrifice that shows the depth of that love. Because genuine love is always going to come out in actions. It's always going to be manifested. And the depth of that will be seen in how it's manifested, in the way that that comes out. Even our unsaved world recognizes that, right? They will understand that when we look at life and when we talk about love and what that means. But in all of the history of the world, in all of our universe, there has never once been an expression of love that comes anywhere close to comparing to the expression of love that God's Son showed us in his death on the cross. It's unfathomable. How can we even begin to wrap our minds around what God did when he sent his son? That is an expression of love like no other. And yet in this passage, what Paul does is tries to help us understand that just a little bit more. And so he gives two statements about this expression of love, about the cross. And in the middle of these two, they're kind of like parallel statements. And then he gives us an analogy in the middle because analogies are helpful for us, right? Uh, to, for our minds to wrap around something. So we're going to look at both of these statements and we're going to look at that illustration that's found in the middle. Well, the first statement of this expression of God's love is in verse six. He says, for while we were still helpless, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God describes us, or Paul describes us in this passage in two ways. First, he says that we were helpless. The word there conveys the idea of being without strength, that we are morally and spiritually weak, literally helpless. We are unable to do anything for ourselves. What that means is that apart from Christ, we have no way to bring about our own salvation. Ephesians 2 is a great passage that talks about this with great clarity, where Paul simply says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, spiritually devoid of all life. Apart from Christ, there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. There's no good deed that we can perform. There's no way that we can just decide, I'm going to wake up spiritually and be alive. No, just as you think of a corpse that is dead, a dead body that is there, it can't do anything to change its situation, right? It has no ability whatsoever, and we have no expectation on that dead body that it could somehow come to life. Well, God says, spiritually, that's where we are, utterly helpless on our own. No way to improve our condition before him. But Paul also says not only we're helpless, he says we're ungodly, literally without godliness, right? Uh, That uh, we have nothing in us that is good. Uh, We aren't even just ambivalent to God that we think, hey, you know, he's okay, whatever. We're just going to leave him alone. No, Uh, when it says we are ungodly here, it says that we're opposed to God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's what it means to be ungodly. We're alienated from God. We are hostile in our minds towards him. And we are engaged in active rebellion against him. And we think of godliness and we think of piety. We think of somebody that's righteous that we've known. Basically, Paul says, you were the exact opposite. You had none of that in you apart from Christ. We were utterly godless rebels. That's not a very pretty picture that Paul has painted uh, of us, but it is a true picture. It's very bleak. We're helpless. We're without Christ. And yet, uh, Paul says... um, that God proves his love for sinners like that, right? For the helpless, the ungodly, by sending his son at the right time. At the exact right time. It certainly was the right time in human history. God was doing all kinds of things. We think about the Christmas story. He was even moving Roman emperors to uh, take censuses of the land so that would shift some people around so that, you know, this, this pregnant lady would uh, end up in Bethlehem instead of in Nazareth. And so in, in history, it was the right time. But what we see from that too is that more than that, it was the right time in salvation history. That God had a plan and him sending Christ was not an afterthought. Right? It wasn't a, oh no, now what am I going to do? Adam and Eve sinned. I've got to come up with a backup plan. No, this was all in God's perfect timing and his perfect plan that he would send his son to come to earth to die for sinners. Well, Paul gives us in verse 7 an illustration of this expression of love, of God sending his son to die for sinners, to help us wrap our minds around what that means. He says that one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Now, for a long time growing up, this was very confusing to me. Those are not the two words I would have picked. What's the difference between a righteous man and a good man? And the righteous guy actually kind of sounds better than the good man to me. And uh, so it was confusing. And so I had to study. And what I found out is that when Paul uses the word righteous here, he's speaking of someone who's morally upright. He's not using this in the salvific sense of righteousness because he's given us a picture here that wants us to understand. So this is... Think of somebody who's the the letter of the law person. This word righteous could be used to speak of like a law-abiding citizen, okay? So maybe in our culture that would translate into somebody who doesn't speed, somebody who doesn't get parking tickets. Uh, They they abide by all the policies of their homeowners association. Uh, They don't cheat on their time card at work. Uh, This was the kid that always raised his hand in school before he spoke in class, right? Just think of this somebody who keeps their nose clean. And that's really all. They're, they're like, yep, they're just kind of a squeaky clean person. That's all there is to it. Um, and Paul says, uh, 
Especially we got to think now, not in our culture, because we kind of have a hero complex. But in Greek and Roman culture, when you look at a person like that, uh, very, very unlikely that anyone would ever think of giving their life for that person. Okay? Uh, yes, they're a good person. Yes, they're kind of morally upright, but that's the extent of it. Nobody's going to die for that person. Well, the good man that Paul gives here in his illustration takes it one kind of step further. This is speaking of someone who's kind, who's generous, who's benevolent. Their life has touched other people. So um, yes, on the one hand, they do abide by the law and they do keep their nose clean. But uh, more than that, they are caring for other people. It's maybe something that we think of as like the philanthropist, somebody who's generous, somebody who's involved in charity work and is giving to other people, doing good deeds. And Paul says, you know what? You might die for someone like that. It's possible that you would be willing to risk your life uh, for theirs. So let's put it in today's culture and context. You are coming home from work or from out running some errands or from school. And as you drive up to your house, you see that there uh, is a fire in your neighborhood. And two of your neighbor's houses are fully engulfed in flames. Uh, Neighbor number one is what would be the equivalent of the righteous person here. They're upright, they're fine, uh, they keep their grass, you know, mowed and the trees trimmed and uh, things like that. They don't disturb the peace, they don't have loud wild parties or anything like that. They don't park in the no parking zones, but they just kind of keep to themselves, right? And, you know, nobody really maybe even knows them all that well. They just mind their own business. Would you run into that burning house to save that person? Paul says, probably not. But then there's the next door neighbor whose house is also on fire and engulfed in flames. This is the person uh, that's well known for helping out others within the neighborhood. They're the person who's always putting together projects to help with the widow down the street to care for her yard and to care for her home. Uh, They're the the guy that's out there fixing the bicycles for all the neighborhood children each year in the spring and getting them all tuned up. This is the guy that came over to your house when you were sick and brought you a meal so that you could uh, help recover from that, from that illness, right? And then offered to help take you to a doctor's appointment. Paul says, would you run into that flaming house to save that person? You know what? Maybe you would. You'd certainly have to think about it and consider if you would do that. So that's the picture that he gives in his illustration He says, rarely is somebody going to die for just a run-of-the-mill law-abiding citizen. Maybe somebody is going to die for the philanthropist, for the person that cares for other people. But that sets the stage for what God did for us. Because in verse 8, he gives us his second statement of the expression of God's love, the second way of describing. He says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now think of this in light of that illustration that he just gave in verse 7 when he expresses God's overwhelming love for us. He said, here's the issue. We aren't the philanthropist. We aren't even just the law-abiding citizen. God says we were sinners. Sinners. God didn't send his son to save good people. He didn't even send his son to just save neutral people. He sent his son to earth to die to save sinners, rebels like us, wicked, wretched, helpless sinners. That's the expression of God's love that will never be matched again in all of human history. But I love what this verse says. It says that God demonstrates his own love towards us. That's not past present or past tense. That doesn't just say God at some point demonstrated his love for us. It's present tense. It's continual. And what he is saying is that the cross forever stands as this reminder, as this expression, as this picture of the incredible, overwhelming love of God for sinners like us. Even when we get to heaven, Revelation chapter 5, John records for us there. He said, I saw a lamb standing as if what? Slain. Even there, the marks of the cross have not been forgotten. It's not, will never fade away. The cross forever stands as a demonstration of the love of God. Undeniable proof of his love for his children. Brothers and sisters, 
think what that means for us. Think what that means for our lives. Think what that means for times of trial and difficulty when we're struggling with hope. How this builds that hope and that confidence in God. We never need to doubt God's love for us. And if we do doubt it, we look to the cross because it's right there. It's never going to go away. It's never going to move. It is forever there as God's demonstration for us, right, of his love for us. He did not love us because we were, a good, we were good people. Therefore, he's not going to stop loving us when we are struggling, when we are wrestling with our sin. We are no more pleasing to God and no more loved by him on our good days than we are on our bad days. Why? Because he didn't love us because we were good people. He didn't love us because we would obey. And so now he doesn't love us more or less based on how we do that. He could not love us any more than he did at the cross. And he will not love us any less than that. We could not earn his love. We cannot lose his love. The cross stands there forever demonstrating it for us. That is the beauty and the glory of the gospel That Christ's work on our behalf on the cross is complete. We are sinners who are now beloved of God and therefore fully justified in his sight. And so we get to experience every day this overwhelming love of God. And if you are a true child of God, if you've been reconciled to him and you have a relationship with him and yet you seem to feel nothing but displeasure when you think about God and your relationship with him, you always feel like he is against you. If you truly know him, then you need to change your thinking. You need to stop and you need to align it with the scriptures and you need to align it with the Holy Spirit because what is the Holy Spirit doing according to verse five? He is sitting there just funneling and pouring that love of God into your hearts. So this text says, remember that. God demonstrates his love for us at the cross. The Spirit is continually testifying to our hearts of that love. And so we rejoice in that. We embrace that. Right? We realize that in times of difficulty, but also in the great times, when things are going well, that not, God's not more pleased with us then. No, all we have and the greatest thing we have is his love for us and in our lives. Some people will say, though, you know what? If all I do is think about God's love for me, if you're saying, no matter what, and even if I'm struggling, God loves me and he loves me just as much then as he does when I'm obeying and when I'm doing all the things that I should, well, won't that lead to sinful living? Couldn't that lead to licentious? If all we're thinking is God's love, 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 is that, couldn't that be negative for us? Well, on the one hand, Paul says, no, right? Later on in Romans, he's gonna say, should we go on sinning so that grace would abound? And his answer is very emphatic, absolutely not. But in addition to that uh, most critical and biblical theological response that Paul would give, let me give you a practical example that I think helps us to understand this. If you're married, you know that your husband or your wife loves you. If you've been through trial, maybe been through some difficulty and struggles, and they are faithful, they love you, you know that they will forgive you even when you have done things that are wrong, right? And, and you know that you have, you have a depth of relationship, and there's a beauty to that relationship there. Have you ever, as a spouse, once thought, I know that my husband or my wife loves me. I know that they will forgive me. Therefore, I'm going to go out and cheat on them. I'm going to go ignore them. I'm going to go run around with other people and because uh, I know that they'll always forgive me. We would never think that, right? That thought would never even cross into our minds. Instead, we see their love for us and we respond with love to them, right? That just engenders even more affection for us when we see their love. It doesn't drive us away. It doesn't give us freedom to then ignore them and go do anything else. It causes us to love them all the more. And so it is in an infinitely greater way with the love of Christ that when we understand this, when we understand that we can always look to the cross and see this, this, this continual demonstration of the love of God for us, given even when we were sinners, so that when we are trapped in our sin, we look at that and see God's heart of love for us. That's what changes us. That's what sanctifies us. That's what makes us more like Christ. That is the true motivation for change as we see God's love for us. So Paul says, when you're struggling, whether you're struggling with sin, you're struggling with difficulty, you're struggling with the relationship, you're, you're doubting. God says, you have hope. It's hope that lasts forever. And the way that you can know it, because the Holy Spirit is just dumping and funneling that love into our hearts, a love that was so great that God would send his son 
to die for us when we were rebellious sinners who hated him. That's the overwhelming expression of the love of God for us to encourage our hearts. Well, what about the extent of God's love? How far does it go? Verses 9 through 11. As if it were not enough that Christ would die for us while we were still sinners, there's even more. If you've ever had the unfortunate uh, opportunity to watch one of those infomercials on TV, uh, you can work with me in this analogy. It's a little, little different here. But uh, you, what, what do you hear? There's that line in there. But wait, there's more. And sometimes it's just crazy. You hear these things, you know, if you buy this vacuum cleaner, you get free, you know, um, car cleaning kit. And then not one, not two, but three kitty sweaters to help your cat during the coldest times of the winter, right? And, uh, you know, act now and we'll do half the price or double the, you know, just keep adding it on. And it seems a little bit ludicrous. And it really is. And I apologize if anybody's in the infomercial business. Um, <laughs> but do you think about that? That's why they keep adding stuff. Well, guess what? God does that in our salvation infinitely greater way. That he keeps adding stuff. He's constantly giving us blessings. Even in Romans 1 through 5, here's this whole list of things. You're justified. That should be enough, right? And yet not only that, but you have peace with God. You have access into his grace. You have hope and you have joy even in the midst of difficulties and trials. And this passage, Paul gives a similar idea. He says, let me show you some more to express uh, the benefits, the extent of God's love. And again, he gives two kind of parallel statements to show us the greatness or the extent of God's love. Uh, and uh, the first one is in verse 9. He says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So much more. He's saying, well, let me show you even more. Let's take this to, to another extent here. Here's continuing benefits of the love of God. Okay? And Paul does this, he uses an argument from the greater to the lesser. He says, look, if I've done this great thing for you, this little thing's really not a problem, right? And guaranteed you're going to get this. If I'm willing to do all this, then this is going to come with it. This blessing is certainly a part of the package. So here in verse 9, the, the, the greater part of the equation um, is justification. Paul says, we've been justified, right? That God has declared us righteous in Christ. And if he has done that, if he has done all the work that that entailed of sending his son and going to the cross, dying, rising again, imparting us new life, right? If he's done all of that, then certainly he'll save us from the wrath of God. What wrath? I think he's talking about future wrath, the wrath that's going to come when one day God is going to pour out his just, righteous, and holy anger against all the sin of this earth, and he's going to judge it. Satan and, and, and then um, the demons will be forever cast into the lake of fire along with those who have rejected God. There is this time of wrath that's coming, but God says, I'm going to save you from that. If I'm going to justify you now and do all of this work now, you don't need to be afraid about this over here. I've done all of this. Then of course you get the benefit of not having to worry, not fear my wrath because you've been justified. You are saved from the wrath of God through Christ, through what he has done. Then in verse 10, he gives another statement of this extent of God's love. Uh, basically, just to reinforce the same idea, to really drive home the point. He says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Okay, so again, from the greater to the lesser. The greater is that he's reconciled us. He's restored a relationship where we are now his sons and daughters. We've been adopted into his family and everything has been made right with him through the death of Christ on our behalf. He says, if that's happened, that's the greater part, then certainly we will be saved by his life. I think it's saved. He's talking about how God will preserve his saints, how he will keep us until heaven. Peter described this really well in 1 Peter 1.5. He describes Christians as those who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What he's saying is, I didn't save you and reconcile you and justify you just so that then I could turn you loose on this life and say, man, I hope you make it the rest of the way. You know, I hope that when you die, I get to see you in heaven. No, he's saying if he's restored our relationship, if he's reconciled us to God, then of course he is going to protect us throughout this earthly life. Of course he's going to keep us safe, walking with him and bring us home to glory. Now, um, an illustration to understand this is um, 
adoption. I have, I have two adopted kids. Uh, my son, Josiah, has uh, been home for about a year and a half, and my daughter is waiting in Ethiopia for uh, her visa to clear so we can uh, bring her back. So we'll use my son, for example. Okay? Two years that we spent uh, doing paperwork, praying, taking classes, uh, writing emails, calling embassies, doing all of this different stuff, uh, raising money, um, taking airplane rides, uh, all these things so that we could adopt Josiah and make him a part of our family. God was gracious throughout this process and people were involved to help us and to donate and care for us and and all this stuff that goes into this. Two years, like I said, from when we started until we got him home. Now imagine if on that final trip we were fly over to Ethiopia, we pick up little Josiah and we fly back here. We get home, basically say, all right, bud, you're, you're home and man, you're on your own. I know you don't understand English. You're only one, but uh, I hope you can figure things out. Uh, food, uh, there's a refrigerator. Help yourself to anything you need. Uh, and pavilions is about a quarter mile down the road. It's really easy to get to. Good luck, don't, don't starve. Right? That would be ridiculous, right? Or sleeping. Say, all right, you know, Josiah, we're, we're back, and we're so glad that you're in our family, and the garage is right out there, uh, you know. Uh, scrounge for whatever you want. I think there's a little bit of yarn from one of my wife's knitting projects out there, so maybe you can make a blanket or something for yourself and, you know, go to it. Try not to get too cold. Ridiculous, right? We would never, ever do that. Why? Because he's a part of our family. We did all this other stuff, right, of the whole process of bringing home. He wasn't even born during half of that process, right? And then he's not living with us. He's over in Ethiopia. And we're doing all these things for this this boy that we've never even met. So then when we get home, of course, he's going to get all of the blessings and all of the the benefits, if you will, of being a cop, of being in our family, of being a member of the family. We're not going to do this and then ignore all of these other things. We're not going to just leave him on my own. He's my son. And God says, that's what I've done for you. You've been justified. You've been reconciled. Anything else you need, any continuing benefit for this life, it's yours. Wrath of God, you don't need to fear it. Why? Because Jesus already took the wrath of God for you. Preservation of salvation, you're worried. What about struggles? What about trials? What about my sin? God's gonna carry you through. He's gonna protect you throughout your entire life until the day that he brings you home to glory. How can we be sure? Romans chapter eight, verses 29 and 30. We're familiar with this passage. Uh, says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. It's an unbreakable chain of events in salvation there. It's never going to get short-circuited. You ever, well, well, God foreknew me and conformed me to be predestined to his son, but somehow I never made it to glorification. It's not going to happen. How do we know that? He says, uh, he uses glorified in the past tense in 830. He says, those whom he glorified. Look around the room. We don't look very glorified yet, do we? Right, we haven't experienced that, but it is so sure in Christ that Paul can talk about it in the past tense. It's guaranteed. It's a done deal because of God's love for us because of what he has done. That's the overwhelming love of God for us. It's what he's already done in the past, the way that he has saved us and justified us and forgiven us but it's the hope that we have for every moment in this life. No matter what happens, it's the hope that we have for the future. It's the hope that we have for all eternity is reveling in the love of God. And at this point, if our hearts aren't just bursting with joy when we think about the love of God, then we gotta do a serious heart check to see what is going on. So how can we know when you're struggling, trial, difficulty, how can we know that God's hope is secure? It's because of his love, because of what this passage has showed us. But it doesn't end there. Just briefly, there's one more thing that Paul points out for us, and that is the end result of the love of God. And I already kind of started talking about this, but verse 11, he says, not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So where does he, where does he go with all of this, right? Where does he end? How does he kind of land this plane when he talks about the love of God? He ends with rejoicing. When we understand the expression of God's love, we understand this just never-ending extent of God's love for us. It leaves us rejoicing. 
The word talks about like exuberance, exulting with great exuberance, joy. This is kind of like jumping for joy, the old Toyota commercials, you know, where you just can't help but leap and jump because we understand what God has done for us. Paul talked about this uh, already when he talked about hope. He talked about joy with that back in uh, 5.2. He says, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. So when we understand the love of God, right, then that brings us to this place of rejoicing. So hope and joy go hand in hand. God hasn't given us a confidence that's just a, okay, just plod along and we know he's going to get it and this is horrible, it's difficult, but we're going to make it through to heaven and let's just, you know, one foot in front of the other. No. He says, man, yes, things are going to be tough, right? Jesus proved us that life is going to be difficult, right? If, if our Savior got murdered, then certainly we shouldn't look for life of just simplicity and ease. But God says, when you trust in my love for you, you will have hope, you will have confidence, and it will be accompanied by great joy. Great joy. So as we face trials, as we look at persecution, as we wrestle with our own sin, and as we look at uh, just struggles and difficulties, God says, your hope is secure. It's secure because I love you, and the end result of that is joy. What amazing truths, right? To know that there is something that transcends all circumstances of life. The love of God is greater. If you're experiencing the most difficult trial of your life today, Know that God's love is greater. If you're depressed, you're feeling down, you're feeling discouraged in your heart, know that God's love is deeper than that. If you're battling with sin, just feeling unlovely in God's sight, you're just feeling defeated and just constantly wrestling with that, know that God's love is greater than your sin. If you're feeling dry, maybe things just feel emotionless, you feel like, I'm just coasting. You know, maybe I wake up in the morning and I do my quiet time. I'm here at church on Sunday, but there's just this sense where you're dry. You need to know God's love. Understand the greatness of it, and that's going to leave you at a place of rejoicing because his love is greater than that spiritual desert you feel like you're in right now. And even if you feel like, man, things are going great. Life is good right now. This is a time of joy. Well, praise God and know that his love is even greater than that also. Right? That's why there's such great rejoicing because his love transcends all of that. So wherever you are at, however things are, and no matter how much it changes between today or tomorrow and next Wednesday, whatever goes on in there, know that God loves you. There is hope for you. There is confidence for you. And it will lead to joy when we understand the depth of God's love for us. We saw the expression of it. He sent his son to die for miserable, wretched sinners like me and like you. There is no greater love. We saw the extent of it, that it's not only his love from eternity past, it's his love for all of this life and into eternity future. And then we saw where it ends. It ends in joy. It ends in praising God. So brothers and sisters, this week as you face trial and difficulty, face it with hope by understanding the love of God that the Holy Spirit is pouring into your hearts. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible privilege to be called your beloved children. We know that we can't earn it. When we look at our lives, we see that we couldn't even keep it if you, did, if you left it for us on our own to do that. God, you instead just lavish your love upon us day in and day out. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for this eternal reminder of your great love for us, a love that overcomes sin. Lord, a love that is glorious, a love that exalts you and makes you look great. And Lord, a love that leaves us rejoicing. And I pray, God, that that's what would mark our lives, that even during the deepest, darkest of trials, even during the most happy and blessed times, that we would rejoice in the love of God. May we do that even this week. We pray now in Christ's precious, precious name. Amen.